No particular verse today. The message is called woke. Hope you will be, if not, are already. There's going to be a ladies' prayer. Is this still relevant? The ladies, there's going to be a ladies' prayer and snack time. I like that word, snack. After Sunday, April 28th service, that's next week. And in March, we had about 12 people join our sweet hour of prayer. Hope you can come and spread the word. I hope so, too, because the effective prayers of the saints are definitely that. Now, the, the effects of prayer being seen and felt and testified to throughout the country and beyond that. And that's why we prayed this morning for the saints, our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka. Over 200 people were killed today as three churches blew up and three hotels also at the same time. So our prayer is that they stand firm in persecution. Our brothers and sisters stand firm in persecution. And as Pastor Brown prayed that the Lord would comfort the morning. The morning are blessed because of their comforter. And the comforter is none other than the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. So if you wanted to turn to a passage, it's amazing, though, that won't get as much attention as a monument that burns down with no lives taken, a monument with relics and icons. And it's just the way that things are now. What's more important? And we're going to discuss what's important to us today. Experiencing the kingdom of God. Emphasis on experience. Emphasis on the kingdom of God. Emphasis on this, even now. And get woke to that. If you wanted a verse to refer to, I suppose we could go to Ephesians 5.14. Or you could go to Romans 13.11-14, the most significant Exhortation in Romans. Or you could go to Revelation 3 2 or Revelation 16 15 or Isaiah 52 1 or 60 verse 1. You could go to some of those verses if you wanted. And for our communion service today, you might even want to go to Luke chapter 24 and verse 31 because a certain awakening occurred at the first communion service offered by the risen Christ in his resurrection life. Now, near the close of a marvelous little book called The Way of Jesus Christ. Hi, Matt and Jill, by the way. Good to see you guys. Jürgen Moltmann wrote the following sentence. Quote, the expectation of the future of Christ sets the present in the light of the one who will come and makes bodily life in the power of the resurrection experienceable. Theologians have to use different words, coin different terms. That's the first time I ever saw the word experienceable, able to be experienced. I want to read that again on the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is traditionally today, but truly every day to those who know him. Quote, the expectation of the future of Christ. And that's what eschatology is all about. The future of Christ sets the present in the light of the one who will come. And here's the phrase. And makes bodily life in the power of the resurrection, experienceable. That means now, that means in these present mortal bodies, and that means then, after a bodily change, forever without interruption. The Father would have for us, even now, an experience of bodily life, in the power of the resurrection. 
Now, you can celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but I think even beyond that, we can experience bodily life in the power of his resurrection as we celebrate. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead was brought about by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the glory of the Father because it's the Spirit of the Son. In whom the Father glories. Romans 6.4 That spirit also resides in us. In our present mortal bodies. The Father. Who delights to give us the kingdom of God. I love the tender words of Jesus to his troubled disciples. And he said. Don't worry little flock. It's the Father's delight to give you the kingdom. Luke 2, 12, 32. The Father who delights to give us the kingdom does not wait to give us the kingdom in the hereafter only. He gives it to us to experience even now. Though only then, when we say then, at the parousia, which is the universal appearance the epiphany of our Lord Jesus Christ, when every eye sees him, even those who pierced him, when every knee genuflects, when every tongue acknowledges a pledge of allegiance to him. He gives it to us to experience this kingdom even now. Only then, at the parousia, when the sons of God are manifested in glory, as Romans 8.23 says, we will experience the glorious freedom of the children of God without any further interruptions, without any intermissions, without any of the distractions of the present evil age, and without bodies that are corruptible or mortal. In some manuscripts of Matthew 6, not all, but in some, at the close of that which we call the Lord's Prayer, in which Jesus specifically prays that the name of the Father be universally hallowed or held sacred. That's the prayer of the Son, it will be done. At the end of that prayer, in very good manuscripts in Matthew, there is a doxology in which glory is ascribed to God. Jesus says, for yours, speaking to the Father in heaven, is the kingdom and the power of the glory and the glory forever. Amen. Yours is. That's present tense. The kingdom is the Father's. When Jesus partook of the communion service with his disciples, he said, I will not partake of this again with you until I do it in my father's kingdom. And his father's kingdom came in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The kingdom is the father's and it's his to give. Thank God. Thanks be to God. It's his to give. And he gives it to whom he wills. And it's his will to give it to you. So it's God's will, but even his delight. For those of you who may think that he's above passion or emotion, it's even his delight. That it be experienceable to you now. For the experience of the kingdom of God, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.20, the experience of the kingdom of God is not in talk, but in power. We can talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and say how grateful we are for it, or we can live in the power of it. The kingdom of God is not in talk. It's in power. 1 Corinthians 4.20 The power of the kingdom of God is the Holy Spirit. Because he's the same spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. First, he woke him up. Imagine it. 
He woke up. Then he stood up. Now he's seated, having ascended. Romans 1.4 says it's the Holy Spirit who raised him from the dead. So does Romans 8.11 and 1 Peter 3.18 says the same. And the same spirit who is in us forever, Jesus said in John 14.17, he's with you, but he'll be in you forever. The same spirit who is in us forever is the spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So the power that raised him from the dead is in your bodily members, making experienceable the kingdom of God even now. Not in talk, but in power. The kingdom of God is within you, says Luke 17, 21. Doesn't mean among, not there. It means within. The kingdom of God is within you because the spirit of God is in you. Match Luke 17, 21 with 1 John, or rather with John 14, 17. 1 Corinthians 3.16, you are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit indwells you in 1 Corinthians 6.19, as well as James 4.5. The spirit that he's made to permanently indwell you lusts against that which would prevent you from experiencing that kingdom. That lust is an intense desire of the spirit. He intensely desires, as does the Father, that you experience in your bodily life in the present the kingdom of God. Not many people are seeking the kingdom of God in his righteousness because they're concerned and worried about everything else. From their clothes to their homes to their own self-image and how they're perceived by other people. Moreover, the kingdom of God does not consist of dietary regulations about what to eat or not eat or what to drink or not drink. That's spilled over from religious regulations into a multitude of diets. I studied a few of them recently, and I realized if I followed all the diets, I couldn't eat anything, and I would die. I guess a good idea just to be fast and think about it. But you can't have this food group because that'll kill you. You can have this food group because it's really good for you, but it could kill you. But, you know, but anyways, it's not the kingdom of God doesn't consist in all that dietary regulations about what to eat or not eat, what to drink or not to drink. Now, medically, that could be something different. I'm not doing away with that necessity. But it says the kingdom of God consists of righteousness, peace, and joy. Notice it in the Holy Spirit. You can't separate the experience of the kingdom of God from the experience of the Holy Spirit. Romans fourteen seventeen, And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, benevolence, faith or faithfulness, humility, self-control. That wasn't an exclusive or exhaustive list, but a representative list. There are many other fruits or products of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Only a representative list in Galatians 5, 22 to 23. The fruit of the Spirit is set in total contrast with the works of the flesh, as it's called, which is the consistent practice of some. The consistent practice of the works of the flesh listed in Galatians 5:19 to 21 again only a representative list are things that disallow a person and a community to experience the kingdom of god it bans us from the experience of the kingdom of god this works of the flesh does not just arise out of the lust of the flesh but out of the lust to be justified apart from grace. 
the works of the flesh, is indicative of a culture of narcissism. That phrase coined by Christopher Lash in a sort of sociological book way back in the maybe the 70s. A culture of narcissism. Paul described this culture of narcissism in 2 Timothy 3, 2. Men shall be, humans shall be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God. The only cure for being narcissistic is for the love of God to be poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Not by our attempts to be nicer or more loving, but by the love of God being poured out into our hearts. That means God's own love for us, God's own love for himself, God's own love for all humankind, and even for all creation. Paul wrote this in Philippians 2.14. He described a culture of narcissism as a warped generation. Warped because that which should be directed to God in worship is bent back into worship of self. And therefore, instead of extending out from self to others in love, it extends out in a warped way to others in using others for your own advantage, your own gain, your own advancement, your own aggrandizement. That's a culture of narcissism. Narcissism is feelingless and insensitive altogether to the harm of others or to harming others. That's why Paul said that we should be a harmful or a harmless generation in the midst of a harmful one. As Jesus said, go out and be harmless as doves. Harmless. So the works of the flesh indicate a culture of narcissism warped because it's turned away from ultimate reality. It will call ultimate reality the universe because it's part of a created reality that they're a part of. The universe is under the second law of thermodynamics under a law of persistent ongoing decay, which will only be reversed by the grace of God. People talk about karma today in a culture of narcissism, but God busted karma. Karma speaks of something that happens as a destiny resulting from an act. So acts you've committed result in a destiny. Grace breaks the link between the act and the destiny. Grace. You can have your karma. I'll take grace. Karma is a product of a warped curvature in ad se, a curvature into oneself. And we'll be tackling a lot of things from reincarnation to the worship of ancestors to what it really means to leave this life to what it means that there is encompassed in the life to come a life lived all over again, this time well, and a lot of other things, because that's why I'm not teaching Galatians but rather teaching with the spirit of Galatians to address matters of our own time. Circumcision for salvation isn't one of those matters, but the spirit of Galatians is the one to address it in. Paul wrote this in Philippians because the community of Christ is to stand out in the midst of the culture of narcissism which is turned on in itself in overweening self-importance. This is what he wrote in Philippians 2, 14 to 16. Do all that you do without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted. That means turned in upon itself, which is the deadly condition of what Augustine called and Luther called homo incurvatus in se. Man turned in on himself. Then warped culture also means turned to others only in order to use them for one's own ends. The community of Christ stands out against such a culture, among whom Paul said, you shine like stars in the world against the celestial sky. As you fix your attention 
That means direct it out from yourself to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I can boast that I had not run in vain or labored for nothing. The only way to truly stand out is through the experience of the kingdom of God. It's not adopting some new kind of morality. The only way to stand out is through the experience of the kingdom of God in the power of the spirit. As the kingdom is the father's to give, the glory of the kingdom also belongs to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, even now. Second Peter 3.18 says to him, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be glory, the glory, that means the glory of the kingdom, both now and to the day of eternity. Notice that both now and to the day of eternity is used here. If we call now, even now, and the day of eternity, then, we can conclude that the glory of Jesus Christ is even now manifested in us, but that it will be manifested in us then, in the day of eternity, completely. That bodily life in the power of the resurrection is presently experienceable is borne out by Paul saying, you were risen together with him. You have risen together with him. In Colossians 3.1. And in 1 Corinthians 6.20, where the saints in Corinth were commanded, glorify God in your bodies. Meaning, in your present earthly bodies. This command would not have been issued by the apostle. If bodily life and the power of the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead were not experienceable now. Even more explicitly, Paul speaking for himself and other missionary apostles. And this is my pastoral key verse. Two of them. Second Corinthians 4.10. We are always carrying around the putting to death of Jesus in the body. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Entosomati, says the Greek. So having been impregnated by the spirit of Christ, we carry around the crucifixion of Jesus in the body so that the resurrection life and livingness of Jesus may also be manifested in the body. That there means the corporate or collective body of Jesus, which we call the church, a poor name for the community of Christ. So 2 Corinthians 4.11 says, For we who live are constantly being handed over to death because of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus, that's his resurrected life, which we participate even now in the mortal body, but in bodily resurrection we will completely, will be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is operative in us, but life in you. Death is... That is, in this case, the dying of Jesus was operational in the apostles' mortal bodily existence. So that the bodily life and the power of the resurrection could be experienceable to the saints to whom he wrote and preached at Corinth and elsewhere and here and now. All this goes to show that indeed, as Moltmann averred, the expectation of the future of Christ sets the present in the light of the one who will come and makes bodily life in the power of the resurrection experienceable. On the heels of that, I would say, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Ephesians 5.14b. It is the spirit of God and of Christ who is both the power of the resurrection and the power of of the kingdom of God. It is the spirit, capital S-P-I-R-I-T, who makes bodily life in the power of the resurrection experienceable to us even now. Otherwise, what is Christianity? If it's not the experience in some meaningful measure of the resurrection power of God in the Holy Spirit, and it's not Christian, it's a form that denies the power thereof which is what Paul says also exists in a dying culture of narcissism. 
They have a power. They, they lack the power of godliness while they have a form of it. Second Timothy three, five. It is the spirit of God and of Christ who makes bodily life and the power of the resurrection experienceable to us even now. And it is the spirit who raised Christ from the dead who will raise up us bodily to experience. Then in the day of eternity, his life and his livingness completely in this experience, however minimal, however momentary and then it seems to be gone like when the disciples recognized Jesus at the first resurrected communion and then he disappeared that's the way our experiences of the kingdom are we experience this glorious and then it's gone and we're left with the hope of perseverance and our hope is not ashamed it's not just a consolation that's deferred because in the meantime the love of God is poured out into our hearts We rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of the expectation of glory. 1 Peter 1.8. And so, it is the spirit that does this. In this experience, however minimal or momentary or however great and extended for some, as we mature more and more into his image. And sometimes you experience the presence of Jesus Christ in a way that you miss when you don't experience it. But you know what's happening when you don't experience the presence of the Son of God? God is making the Son of God present through you to others. That's why we're here. In this experience then, however passing or minimal or however great, the power of the resurrection in these mortal bodies We are in any case tasting of the dynamics and the power that will be thoroughly manifested without interruption at the end of the present clashing juncture of the ages and then forever thereafter. Hebrews 6, 5. God wills not only to save all human beings. He also wills that those who currently believe experience and manifest joy and peace in the process of believing. As Romans 15, 13 says, that's the last verse in the main body of Romans, the epistle puts it this way. It's a climactic kind of verse. Now may the God of hope completely fill you up with joy and peace in the believing, in the believing, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he wills that we experience the kingdom of God, which is constituted by joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. For again, as Romans 14, 17 puts it, the kingdom of God is righteousness. And righteousness is nothing more or less there than the activity of a faith that works by love. Our experience of the kingdom of God Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Our experience, listen carefully, I'm going to use the word experience quite a bit because it is God's will that we, Tetelestai, Phalanx, wherever we're found, experience the kingdom of God. Our experience of the Holy Spirit is our experience of the kingdom of God. Our experience of the Holy Spirit is the experience of the power of of the resurrection. Our experience of the power of the resurrection is the experience of eternal life. And eternal life means the quality of the fullness of life that is to be our experience in absolute fullness of joy in the day of eternity in bodily resurrection. Eternal life is not talking about the expanse or the time expanse of life, but the quality of life that's called truly life. And Paul said to Timothy, lay hold of that which is really life, eternal life, really life. In the nightless day of eternity, 
our experience is called the glorious freedom of the children of God. That's what we're finding in our passages in Romans 8, 21 to be precise. It is that freedom which will overflow to all of the creation, which is waiting for its liberation from slavery to decay. According to physics, that's the second law of thermodynamics. The Father wills that not only the believing who experience this freedom in some measure now, but the whole of humanity and all of creation be liberated from slavery to sin, death, and decay. The cross of Christ, then, is not only the hinge of the door of two ages, closing the door on the evil transient age and opening the door to the everlasting age of life and peace. That is what the cross is, but it's also the means of God reversing the entropy of the vast universe of proportionate being. which came into being in a kind of big bang about 13.9 billion years ago, not 6,000 years ago. He who lays aside the law of karma by the grace that breaks the link between act and destiny is he whose power reverses the law of entropy. He who stretches out the universe like a canopy, says Psalm 104.2, will spread his glory throughout it as he glorifies all of humanity in his son. Hebrews, quoting Psalm 105, says that the universe is like a garment to the Lord. And at the Mount of Transfiguration, even his garments glowed. Not only the humanity of Christ and all humanity will be glorified and transfigured, but the garment that he wore was also transfigured, which speaks of the entire universe of proportionate being in all of its temporal sequences. That's what we're talking about with God. The Father wills not only that the believing who experience this freedom in some measure now, he's willing that we do, but that the whole of humanity and all of creation be liberated from sin, death, and decay. That's the goal, the end game. So the cross of Christ, to repeat, is not only the hinge of the door of two ages, closing the door on the evil transient age, opening the door to the new everlasting age of life and peace. It also means... The cross of Christ means the reversing of the entropy of the universe, which is according to the second law of thermodynamics of necessity coming more and more under degradation and decay. He who lays aside the law of karma by the grace that breaks the link between act and destiny is the same God whose power reverses the law of universal entropy. Through resurrection. He who stretches out, and even physics will tell you that the universe is expanding, stretching out the universe like a canopy, will spread his glory throughout it as he glorifies all of humanity in his Son. When the Son, S U N, of righteousness arises with healing in his rays, Malachi 4 2, that is, when Christ appears in glory and when all the saints, when his glory fills all of the earth and we appear with him in glory and his glory fills and fulfills all of humanity, when Jesus fills his lambs in all of its times, all of the immense universe of proportionate being from the angels to the animals, domesticated and wild, from the principalities and powers to the trees and the rocks, the rivers and the mountains, for God will be All in all, despite your religious affirmations to the contrary. Let us consider then. And I did want to do this immediately, but fashionable things are only fashionable for about a minute. But I did want to take this thing and I kind of vowed to myself I'd never use the word hashtag 
I used to like it when it was just plain pound. Hit the pound sign or pound the sign. It's a hashtag. So there's a fashionable word, and you see it as hashtag woke. Now, on purpose, it's a mispronunciation of having awakened or awakened. When one is woke, according to the fashionable term, which was probably already out of fashion, it means that a person has become alert to and aware of some current trend, especially some injustice in society. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that, and we should be awake and aware to certain things, especially most recently with regard to racial injustice, for example. It may also be applied to those to one who has been awakened and is now alert and aware to new norms that are arising related, for example, to gender fluidity. First, I almost vomited when I heard that people have gender reveal parties. Oh, my heavens. But you can't have those anymore because the gender isn't revealed even after birth, apparently. I don't want to get into that. Just, I'm just an old Neanderthal. Kill me off. I, I sometimes say, man, am I glad my father's not alive. And am I glad Fred's not alive, my grandfather. Well, so, now, I'm not, I'm not saying anything to comment negatively or otherwise on this, but there's, you've got to be woke to a, something called gender fluidity now. And other social trends that tra- challenge the traditional view, for example, of two genders, male and female. God made them male and female. He called their name Adam, which is interesting because it's not condemning of anything. But listen, I just want to deploy this slang or colloquial term to those who have been awakened and who have had Christ shine on them or shine into their hearts and have been enlightened with the light of the knowledge of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, you can be woke to a lot of social things but still be in total darkness like the world that was tohu wabohu, like Saul of Tarsus before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and was suddenly woke So when I use the word woke, I don't mean people that have woke to social injustice. I mean people who have woke to the saving justice of God, which is universal through the cross of Christ. These are the woke. These woke people have become alert to the creative and saving justice of God in Christ. For those without righteousness, he creates righteousness. For those without justice, he creates justice and will do so in his appearing. To the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, to the universally redemptive, reconciling, and rectifying influence of the cross of Christ. If you're woke to those things, you're woke. Those, there are those who have been awakened by the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead into death-conquering life. There are millions celebrating Jesus' resurrection today, but they're not even woke. Now, to be truly woke is to be awakened to justification by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Faithfulness which continues as a fruit of the Spirit in those who are beginning to experience the kingdom of God as an experience of the Spirit. They are woke. That's what I want for this congregation. They are woke eschatologically speaking. They are woke Christologically speaking. They are woke soteriologically speaking. Savingly speaking, we stay woke. 
by continuous receptivity of the gospel, especially as Paul proclaimed it under the power of the Spirit. It's called the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery that's been kept silent for centuries, but is now by the decree of the eternal God being manifested in the writings of the prophets. Romans 16, 25 and 26. This is why I started the series BCP, Better Call Paul. This is why I continued with Romans RTE. This is why we will continue in a theological development of things that confront the aberrations, the distortions of our society and culture now and stand against it, come what may. Probably the most notable aberration of abhorrent doctrine is the doctrine of an eternal hell for immortal souls, which many preachers are getting caught up with the illusion of that thing, with the damnable heresy that is this eternal hell. And they're paying the price for it in their ministries, in their families, and in their personal lives. But there are many more aberrations that we have to tackle. In the spirit of Galatians, I won't be addressing whether or not males should be circumcised to be saved. I think Paul nailed that one down. But in the spirit of Galatians, we'll be hitting a lot of other pertinent aberrations. The salvific doctrine of justification by the faithful death of Jesus Christ is something that the majority of people called churchgoers are not woke to. The faithful death of Jesus Christ as the basis for the justification of mankind is crucial to the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and to the doctrine of universal salvation, which I will use now without apologies or backing off. I'm not a hopeful universalist. I'm a damn convinced one. In fact, it makes universal salvation necessary. The faithfulness of Christ as the basis for justification makes universal salvation absolutely necessary because even if some do not believe, Christ died for all and all died in him and were therefore justified in and with him when he raised from the dead. The woke are people who have been so far gifted with faith. We're woke. They are of the category of what is known as the especially those who believe in 1 Timothy 4.10. God is the Savior of all humankind, especially those who believe. Those who have been woke to believe are the especially category right now. They don't have anything over anybody else because at the end of the day, the laborers come in. I'm using... What Jesus said, not some dead phrase. If I hear at the end of the day, or it is what it is one more time, I'm going to retreat into a cave. It is what it is, and que sera, sera, is a philosophy of losers who are resigned to things as they are, rather than committed to the resurrection life of Jesus Christ that changes things. Now, I'll probably walk out of here and hear it the first time I go order an Arby's. They'll say, we're out of roast beef. That actually happened one time. I was at an Arby's, and they were out of roast beef. And there was a guy at the counter, and he said, you're out of roast This is R-B, roast beefs, Arby's. You're out of roast. He went out. He went ballistic. But so if I, I'll go to Arby's, and they'll say, we're out of Greek heroes. And I'll say, well, What are you going to say about that? And they'll say, it is what it is. And I can't get mad at them because they weren't at the sermon. Now, I won't get mad if you say it to me anyways. But listen carefully as we move toward communion. The woke are the people who have been so far gifted with faith. Don't tell me you're gifted with faith that justified you. If you're gifted with faith, you recognize that you're justified by the faithfulness of Christ. You're woke. And I can't wake you up. Only God can wake you up. So I don't worry about my friends that don't believe it or people that don't believe it yet or people who are attacking me for believing it or you for believing it. I don't, I don't worry about them because they'll be woke. 
Those are woke to the saving justice of God. That's what we've been woke to. And that's married to his thoroughly benevolent omnipotence. And it's grounded in his unfathomable and inescapable love. That's what I've woke to. Psalm 62, 11 to 12, compared with Romans 8, 35 to 39. The power of salvation is for all who believe to experience, even now. And so, all to experience, whether Jew or Greek, because in Christ and to Christ, there is no black or white, brown or yellow, red or green. See the green? I got the green in there. There's one thing that tops the Green New Deal. It's called the new creation. Behold, I make all things new. Guess who does that? It's not the power of the people right on. It's the power of God right on. The power of salvation is for all who believe. There is no male or female. There is no transgender or L or G or B or Q or R or S or T or even U or V. All are in the Alpha and the Omega. How's that one? All identify. Some person recently said, I may be fat, but I identify as skinny. So I'm trans slender. Well, God identifies all of humanity with Jesus Christ. How do you like that one? The old creation, he named them, quote, them, male and female, Adam by one name. All humanity was called by the name Adam. How about the new humanity? All the new humanity is named Christ and all humanity is in Christ. I identify with Christ. Therefore, I am a man in Christ. That's how I identify. I know me as a man in Christ, a person in Christ. So, you woke to that? In the 60s, there was a lot of young people, still today, young people, they're woke to sexual freedom. Let me tell you something else. Be woke to what happens as a result of it, you stupid little child. Look at the effects of what you think is freedom, and it's the worst kind of limiting cage you've ever dreamed in your worst nightmares of being in. You woke to that? Well, all identify as people in Christ, and Christ is in you all. As God called the name of both male and female human beings by the name Adam in the old creation, listen. So now he calls all human beings by the name Christ. He identifies them with Christ. To God, all are living. There is no living and dead. God, to God, All are living. You might experience a loved one's death as you see them die, but your loved one who died didn't experience that death. You did. From the side of the living. They're alive. Luke 20, verse 38. That's why Jesus said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because to me, they're alive. To you, you can look at their sepulchers, their graves. To me, they're alive. Well, that might go a little too far for you on this fine Easter morning. Are you woke to that? If not, then wake up, you sleeper. Rise from the dead of apathy and hyperephania and narcissism, and Christ will shine on you. In the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ, will shine into your very own murky heart as he did in mine and does in mine. Like the light that shone in the darkness in Genesis 1-3. God has spoken once, 
says the psalmist in 6211. And the woke have heard two things in that one thing that God said. The woke have heard two things. Here's the two things. One, that power belongs to God, not to the people, right on. And also to you, says the woke, belong universal loving kindness and compassion. Here's the next one. For you, compensate every person according to his works. Uh Uh-oh. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. God, in his grace, compensates every human being according to every man's work. And every man is Christ, whose finished work furnishes all with rectification and righteousness. Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Christ hung on a tree as every man and was raised from the dead as every man. So God, in his justice, reckons to every man according to what Christ's works are. You woke to that? Then you ain't woke. Don't tell me you're woke if you're not woke to that. Finally, are you woke to the saving justice and righteousness of God? the saving significance of Jesus Christ that is emphatically universal, then you're not woke to a truth that leads to a faith that works by love, though you may be woke to a social or political or racial injustice leading sometimes to anger and bitterness. You aren't woke until you wake up and rise from the dead and the risen Christ shines on you. The risen Christ shone on the sleepy and the slow of heart to believe disciples when he broke the bread at the first meal. They walked with a man. They didn't know who he was. They simply said, didn't our hearts burn when he spoke to us? Sure it did. Because there's a fire that's hotter than hell. It's the fire of God's philanthropic, passionate love for you. So as we approach communion, and our ushers, please get ready to, anyone can participate in this, by the way. Anyone, anyone, no exceptions. And no one has to. You just get to if you will. In Luke 24, 30, it was as he reclined at table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. This is what I consider to be the first communion service conducted in the presence of the risen Christ, but certainly not the last. This is another one. He's just as present here now. Verse 31 of Luke 24, then their eyes were opened. You say, but they were already open, weren't they? They were already awake, weren't they? No, they woke right here. And they recognized him. They became woke, but he disappeared from their sight. Blessed are you who believe without seeing. Now he's invisible to us, and yet because we are woke to him and to his universally saving significance, we can love him and rejoice with unspeakable joy. Filled with the anticipation of glory, we can partake together as we will right now with him who is present with us today, right here by his spirit in this communion service in which we remember his death by crucifixion from which he was raised by the glory of the Father, the Spirit, until he comes and all things are recapitulated in him. For we are woke to this hope. Consequently, we have an educated hope, which I'm going to be teaching on soon, called a docta spes in the Latin, D-O-C-T-A-S-P-E-S, a docta spes, an educated hope. We are educated in the reality that our hope is Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy 1.1, and that Christ in us is the hope of glory in Colossians 1.27, the hope of universal glory. For when Christ appears in glory, we will appear with him. 
in the light of this hope, let's partake of the Lord's Supper together. And at the breaking of the bread, may we be woke. Please follow the lead of the usher. Now that everyone here, without exception, has in their possession the fruit of the vine and the bread that represents the sinless humanity of our Savior, Christ Jesus, the fruit of the vine that represents his universally saving significance in his death for us. Consider that when Jesus initiated this Eucharist, which Paul took as that which we should do until he comes from time to time. We do it rather infrequently because I think there's much more appreciation of it that way rather than daily or weekly. That's just our custom. When it was instituted right at the Passover, even as this Easter is celebrated in the wake of the Passover, Jesus broke the bread and offered the wine in anticipation of his crucifixion. We now partake of communion as a Eucharist. And in Luke twenty four thirty, he reclined at the table with them, took the bread and broke it, this time in remembrance of his crucifixion and in his resurrection and in anticipation of righteousness, as Galatians puts it, we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope or the realized hope of righteousness. And that means we're waiting for the universal setting right of everything in all time. We're waiting for God's saving creative justice to come. For the Father's name to be hallowed, means that his saving justice reverberates through all of creation and all of its times. Jesus prayed for that. It will be done. So picture Jesus speaking to unawakened disciples, still sad because of his crucifixion on the road to Emmaus. It's not until he sits down with them and some other disciples and breaks the bread that they're woken It's been assumed that because when he broke the bread, he revealed the scars in his hands. That may be the case. But in any case, it was the spirit who wakened them as to the reality of who Jesus is. We haven't yet been awakened to the reality of who he is in total, in in totality. So all of us, no matter how we know him, are still going to be surprised when we see him. Never mind saying, boy, are they going to be surprised. So are you. I don't care how. Paul would be surprised. But let's be, you don't, I don't think we know. We don't sense or feel his presence here many times. But it's my prayer today that you would be awakened to it because he's as present, as immediately present to us as our own breath. So in the day that, the night that he was betrayed, the scripture says, please notice that, handed over. And Paul said, we are also handed over so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal bodies. We celebrate today his saving efficacy of his death. We look back with fond remembrance at his love demonstrated at Calvary, but we look forward to his coming when everything will be set right. So he took the bread, he blessed it, he gave thanks not only for the bread, but for his own human body in which he could be a vehicle for obedience to the Father to the death of the cross in order to save all humanity and redeem and restore all creation. Think of that while you eat the bread. In the same night, he took the cup and offered it to God as he offered himself to the Father on the cross. And he said, drink all of it, drink you all of it. And Father, as we do this today, we have drunk a toast to your son. We anticipate the moment when he will hand the kingdom over which he's reigning even now to you, Father, so that you will be all in all. And the glory that's shown into our hearts, it shines from the face of Jesus through the word and the spirit. We look forward to the day when that glory shall fill all the earth. 
So we go forth from here singing a hymn and disposing of the cups, if you will, in courtesy toward others. So thank you, Father, for this glorious time. I anticipated partaking of this with this small flock of believers. Thank you for granting us the assurance that you delight to give us the kingdom. May we depart with that assurance and with the peace and the joy that's only experienced by the Spirit in a bodily experience of resurrection power even now. Amen.